0: Hello, everyone. This is John Amarillo, host of CBA's At the Bar. Three years ago, when this podcast was still in its infancy, Judge William Kunkel, who insisted we call him Bill, came on the program to discuss his successful prosecution of infamous serial killer John Wayne Gacy. To this day, it remains one of our most frequently downloaded episodes, and for good reason it's a remarkable story. Bill recently passed away at the age of 81. He was a dedicated public servant, an outstanding lawyer a friend of the CBA and the podcast, and he'll be missed. We thought it appropriate to remember him here by rerunning our 2019 discussion with him as a special bonus podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of season two of CBA's at the Bar a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news events, topics, stories and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host John Amarillo of Tastatinius and Hollister and co-hosting the pod with me today is my good friend and true crime aficionado. Trisha Rich of Holland and Knight. Trish last joined us when we spoke with Amanda Knox's Italian defense team, and I'm really glad she's back, if only because I appreciate it when she criticizes me in person rather than trolling me on social media and via text message. Hi, Trish.
1: (laughs) Hi, John. How are you? And frankly, I'm multi-talented. I can do all of those things.
0: If you could do them while... Oh, we're yeah. podcasting today. That'd be great. All right. Go for it. So Trish, when you were last here, we were discussing a fascinating, and disturbing tale of murder. And sure enough, upon your return, we're doing the same today. I don't know what that means, but let's jump right into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we're joined today by Bill Kunkel. Bill is a former Cook County Circuit Court judge, but more importantly for our purposes today, a former Cook County Deputy State's Attorney. Bill tried numerous cases that have gone down in Chicago and indeed national legal lore, but none more famous than the one we're here to discuss today the trial and conviction of infamous serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Many will at least know Gacy's name, But just to review the basics, Gacy was a serial killer who operated in and around Chicago throughout the 1970s, killing at least 33 young men and burying most of them throughout his house, beneath the crawl space, under his dining room, and in his garage. He is one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, made worse by the fact that he moonlighted as Pogo the Clown, as if clowns couldn't be any creepier. This last December marked the 40th anniversary of the discovery of a mass grave beneath his home. An important day for the city, for the state, and indeed the country. Bill, thank you so much for joining us at the bar. Glad to be here. Thank you. So let's start at the most natural place, the end. (laughs) You were present for John Wayne Gacy's execution, weren't you?
2: I was. I attended as an appointed uh, official witness for the state. My second chair, Bob Egan, and our chief investigator, Greg Badeau, We're also uh, certified as uh, official state witnesses. And at the conclusion of the execution, the three of us signed the certificate of execution, which is the final document as far as he's concerned.
0: What was that experience like?
2: Well, it wasn't the first uh, execution that I'd attended. And particularly with uh, lethal injection, uh, they're very clinical, uh, in a way, uh, kind of anticlimactic almost.
0: Mm.
2: Although there always means uh, the media finds some way to make it uh, uh, more exciting than it was, which of course is their job. Uh, but in this case, uh, there was a period of time when they had uh, kinked the hose that uh, the tubing that let in from the machine that dispensed the various liquids to the IV in his arm, and they closed the blinds and had to start over by putting on a new hose and uh, unclogging the system and so forth, and that took about 18 minutes. So there were a lot of questions from the media, and it's, uh, oddly enough, it was almost like a circus tent. Sure. You mentioned his uh, Pogo the Clown uh, sideline, and uh, all the TV was there and international press and so on. And the director of the Department of Corrections and the warden of the prison and so forth and others, officials had taken the mic first, and they were being very defensive mm. about this hitch in the, in the execution in the 18 minutes. And I was getting more and more uh, agitated by their defensiveness. And uh, so when it became my turn at the podium and behind the mic, uh, I said something about the scales of justice finally being leveled uh, and so forth and spoke on behalf of the the victims and their families. And then, of course, the immediate, immediate question was, well, what about these 18 minutes? Right. I said, well, frankly, if in fact he was still alive, I said, I'm a layman, but I've toured this uh, facility before. I've been shown the mechanics of the machinery uh, you can follow the, the lights as they flash in the background, yellow and red. Uh, he had completed the second solution. Uh, he was not; His chest was not moving. He was dead as mm-hmm. far as I was concerned. So I don't think it mattered to him, much less anyone else. But if, in fact, he was still alive for 18 extra minutes, he got 18 minutes more than he was entitled to.
0: So you said that you'd seen executions before, Did this one feel different? Was it special in any way?
2: It was an end. Uh, In the criminal law and in civil law as well, there are many, many cases that seem to go on forever. and uh, Always some new kind of appeal or new issue or a new sideline with an additional suspect or an additional Mm -hmm. victim or whatever. And to find actual completion or a termination is extremely gratifying. And that was the way I felt at that point. Not that it was a satisfied revenge, although I believe in retribution on behalf of society, on behalf of the victims' families, but simply closing the door on one finally.
0: Sure. His last words are kind of famous, aren't they?
2: Famous, but untrue. Is that right? I've never seen any written or tape-recorded evidence, I assume. What do you think the last words were?
0: Well, from what I read, they were, kiss my ass.
2: Well, he didn't say that. That's interesting. As far as I know. I was in the front row. Now, there was a glass wall, so you can't really hear everything that's going on behind it. But they're really, uh, according to the warden and the assistant warden that were there, uh, they gave him the opportunity to say anything before they started the series of solutions. Right. But he did, according to them, the only thing he said was something to the effect of "killing me isn't going to bring the victims back," something along those lines. Interesting. And the state's committing murder by killing me. Mm-hmm. Huh. But the other phrase, uh, "the kiss my ass." Did not happen at that time. I did hear one story. There was the warden, or one of the prison officials from Menard, I think, uh, where he had been housed on death row the longest that came to Stateville to have the execution. Uh, Had gotten to know him and shared a cigar with him from time to time and had walked around uh, in the yard with him that day uh, smoking cigars. And he may have said that as part of a conversation with him at that time. And that's been attributed to be his last words, but as far as I know, they really weren't.
1: So the execution happened in 1994, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Um, But the story of how John Wayne Gacy got on your radar started much earlier than that, right?
2: Uh, On my radar, it was December 21st, uh, well, actually the 22nd after midnight of the 21st, in the early morning hours, of December 22nd of 1978.
1: And that was um, right after the disappearance of Robert Peest.
2: Peast disappeared on the 11th. The Des Plaines Police Department, to their credit, waived the 72-hour rule uh, on missing uh, youths at that time, missing people, and uh, started an investigation, and it was pretty clear within the first 24 hours that John Gacy was a suspect. He had been the last one uh, to see him alive, as far as anyone knew. And when he left the pharmacy where he was working and being picked up by his mother to go home for her birthday celebration, he had hollered at her as he left the store, wait for me, I'm just going out to talk to this contractor guy about a job. So she didn't know his name, but the owners of the store knew who the contractor guy was. And uh, that's how the police were able to find out, as I said, within the first 24 hours who they were dealing with.
0: So that reaction time was fairly fast there, but as I understand it, law enforcement uh, came under a lot of criticism after his arrest because it had taken them better part of a decade to realize that he was behind a lot of these disappearances, right?
2: Well, at the time of trial... We introduced at trial uh, life and death witnesses and the identity of 22 of the 33 victims. So at that time, there were technically 11 unidentified. A lot of these uh, people even that were identified had left home, had been out on their own for one reason or another. Some had been snatched off the street, as we learned later from his statements and so Mm -hmm. on. But there were a lot of different stories that account for why, uh, although many of their disappearances were reported at some point in time, there was no way to tie it to him or anyone else with respect to three of the victims. Three of them had been workers on his construction crew. And the families knew his name and knew him, and there was uh, contact between the families and him. Right. And in each of those instances, he was given to the police, and they investigated and wrote reports about him knowing this particular person. In the case of John Butkovich, on the day he disappeared, they had been fighting over how much he owed uh, John for prior work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there had been uh, some blows thrown and so forth in the presence of a couple of witnesses. But they had gone out with him later and then didn't see him uh,
0: after that. So wh- why do you think law enforcement had a difficult time connecting the dots? Well, the
2: problem was, and uh, those three are the perfect example, uh, Butkovich, Zick, and Godzik. all three were working for him. All three, there were reports of, Police going to interview John Gacy as a person that may have been nearly the last or one of the last to see them alive. But even in those three cases, they were never connected mm. because it was two different areas of the Chicago Police Department, Youth Division, and a suburban police department. And they weren't talking to each other. Well, not unless they were in the same bar at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. That just
0: Today, wasn't standard. Today, when
2: you have a missing person or an unsolved homicide, mm-hmm. you have all kinds of forms that are filled out that go onto a computer system nationwide. Right. Uh, that allows people to search and compare and discover uh, patterns. Uh, this would have certainly shown up on that, mm-hmm. for example. But those things just did not exist in 1978.
1: Today, um, I think Gacy is credited with 33 murders. Correct. Do you think that number is correct? Yes. You don't think there are others that you didn't ever?
2: The only possible, if you want to call it evidence, for a 34th victim, and no more than that, is in his oral statements to the police on the night of his arrest, on the night of the 21st, early morning hours of the 22nd, he stated several times that he had placed five bodies in the river. Mm -hmm. Only four bodies were recovered from the river. He said that the first body he disposed of in the Des Plaines River uh, was done in the middle of the night, as he always did, off of a particular highway bridge. And that when he threw that first one first river body over the side of the bridge, he didn't hear a splash. And he was very worried that it might have hung up on the superstructure or the bridge or the pilings or the Mm. foundation. And as it turned out, that did not happen, of course, because there were no recoveries made uh, from from the bridge itself or even very close to the bridge. And so he realized that wasn't a problem. Now, if in fact, he was counting correctly and there was a fifth one that would have been the first one in the river. So it would have predated the first body that was discovered. And if he's right that there was such a body, number one, and number two, that there was no splash, it may have been because it fell on a coal or oil barge, Mm -hmm. huge amount of long barge trains going up and down there Mm. to those refineries near Joliet with the oil and coal going to other locations. So, it could have fallen off further downstream, literally all the way to New Orleans. I mean, who knows? Uh, So, you know, that's a possibility that's out there. It's never, there's never been any other evidence to suggest who it might have been or when it might, exactly it might have been or what had happened to the body if there is one. So, I'm not sure that there's uh, a lot of support for that theory.
0: Sure. But Let, that's it, let's nothing re, else. Let's rewind it a little bit for our audience and those of our audience who are not as familiar with him. What was Gacy's modus operandi?
2: Well, the first killing was the young man from Iowa who was identified post-trial. There were two identifications post-trial that we knew who they were, but the, all the paperwork hadn't been finished and we didn't want to delay anything. So the families were aware, but... Mm-hmm. Those came first, and then this young man from Iowa. He disappeared, left home uh, around New Year's, and Gacy recovered, uh, ran into him at the Greyhound bus station in downtown Chicago, took him to his house, spent the night in, according to Gacy, voluntary and consensual sex uh, of one kind and another, And in the morning, Gacy awoke in his bedroom to see the young man standing at the foot of his bed with a large butcher knife. And he says he assumed he was being attacked. Mm -hmm. So he jumped off the bed and grabbed the kid, and they fought over the knife, and he got the knife, stabbed him twice as he put it in the heart, and killed him. And that was the first one.
0: And he just liked it so much, he continued decide to keep going? Uh,
2: I, that's certainly the psychiatric theory that I preferred. Uh, I think that certain victims were chosen because they could be a problem for him, like Butkovich, who uh, and the other two that knew him, and if there mm-hmm. was some argument or something going on that had gone wrong, they would know where to find him. His families would know where to find him. So he couldn't allow that to mm-hmm. happen. Uh, if he had a victim... Uh, that wasn't that well-known to him either way, even a nameless one. But if they were talking about going to the police or this and that, I think that was a problem for him. I think that was often part of the motivation. But I think you hit it absolutely right on the head. Psychologically, the defense kept talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and frankly, I use that in closing argument because he made a voluntary decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, to discover the evil not somewhere else but within himself. And when he made that discovery and remembered it, he enjoyed that power of life and death and deciding who would live. And I think that was true of Gacy, and he suggests that in uh, some of the books that other authors have written, Ross Ewing in particular. And uh, in his book, uh, I think Gacy uh, says as much, that he was worried about certain individuals going to the police or telling the story, and uh, plus he enjoyed it.
1: So what was the time period for that first victim's murder?
2: January 3rd, 1972.
1: Okay. And so then, and Gacy was ultimately apprehended in December of uh, 78. '78. So for six years, he was killing people in the...
2: Correct, but he was doing it in a place that he had complete control of. Yeah. Yeah. He was doing it at uh, early morning hours when no one could see inside his house.
1: So why was he throwing people in the river at the end? Did he just run out of room? Ran
2: out of space, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. He
0: That's had
2: perfect. gone to his next-door neighbor, Lillian Grexa, and showed her the plans he was developing for pouring three feet or two or three feet of concrete over the crawl space so that he could add a second story to the house.
1: Wow. And so today, I I think there's still at least a couple of victims who are still unidentified, right? Six, I believe. Six? Do you think those people will ever be identified?
2: I'm very glad that the sheriff uh, instigated the program to try to determine uh, with the new technologies that we have available now that weren't available then, to try to determine those identities. I think that's a, a laudable project. They've discovered, in effect, two. And uh, I just think it's going to be very hard to get any more. Surprisingly, when the call went out at the beginning of the investigation for people to send in dental x-rays or other information, whatever, even if it was just a name and a date of uh, family members or people that they knew that had disappeared in the right time period, The response was not that great. Uh, You would have expected thousands, and it wasn't.
0: So while we're on the victims, you said that Gacy selected some of his victims essentially to cover his tracks. What about the others? I think some were strictly uh, for his sport. How did he find them? Well,
2: we know that uh, one of the victims whose uh, father was in law enforcement and whose uncle in law enforcement ultimately testified as the life and death witness was uh, given a ride hitchhiking home from the northwest suburbs from uh, a horseback riding.
1: Was it just opportunistic? Uh,
2: Absolutely opportunistic. One of them was uh, from out of state, was leaving a rock concert, Mm -hmm. and he was out there waiting to offer a ride. Uh,
1: I think that was Ted Bundy's first victim too, right, Was somebody hitchhiking to a rock concert. Could be. Yeah, Interesting.
0: Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. Need a lawyer, Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash L-R-S.
1: So, I mean, one of the things that John Wayne Gacy is most famous for was that he was also a a clown, but that didn't have anything to do with the way he found his victims, right? That just happened to be a coincidence, wasn't it? Or am I misunderstanding that?
2: Well, there was a connection of sorts. When he would dress up as Pogo the Clown, uh, which he says stood for uh, Polish and always on the go, Uh. one interesting factor was his makeup. If you've ever seen the pictures of him with the balloons in front of the house or the tree farm and so forth, All The the mouth is very pointy. The eyes are very pointy. If you've ever seen pictures of Emmett Emmett Kelly and the great circus clowns, everything's rounded. He is, in fact, the kind of clown that would be in an opera or would scare children because of the nature of that makeup. And actually, we got letters from different clown associations talking about this fact and pointing out that people shouldn't refer to him as even an amateur clown because he didn't know what he was doing. This was evil makeup and
1: oh, gosh. blah,
2: blah, blah. But one of the things that he would do as his entertainment as a clown for kids and others is he would do what he called the handcuff trick. He would have a pair of police issue handcuffs and he would handcuff himself behind his back And then, of course, Houdini-like he would get out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't even a set of trick cuffs. It was regulation cuffs, but he simply had the key in a little pocket sewn into the cuff of his clown's outfits. Okay. And so he was able to pull the key out with a couple fingers, unlock one, and then unlock the other, and bingo, great (laughs) released from the handcuff trick. So the first thing he would do
0: a heavy metaphor with a victim,
2: there. <laughs> in which he did with many of what we call the living victims, people that were assaulted and but not killed or trying to be put in, into a, a state of uh, defenselessness mm-hmm. uh, but fought their way out of it, more than one, a uh, couple testified at trial, they would get as far as the handcuff trick but then what would happen next was the rope trick, where he'd put a noose around their neck and say, "Well, let's see if you can get out of this." And in fact, he was setting up a garret to twist the rope in such a way that it would cut off the blood flow to the carotid arteries and cut off uh, and create asphyxia.
0: And that's how he killed most of his victims, right? All of Strangulation. Them as far as,
2: uh, other than the first one, okay. And uh, Doctor Stein testified that that kind of a garret could create Unconsciousness in as little as 10 to 30 seconds, and death in as little as a minute to a minute and a half.
1: That is just terrifying. And John and I both belong to the generation that was born being, you know, terrified of clowns because this was happening and then it was coming out right at the right. same time. <laughs> yeah. And this makes me feel no better about clowns. <laughs>
0: it's just a well founded uh, fear, I think, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've covered some of the ending. Um, And the beginning, let's go to the middle part. Gacy's uh, confession and his arrest, how did all that go down?
2: Well, beginning a couple of days after Peace Disappearance, Gacy was placed under 24-hour surveillance by the Des Plaines Police Department Mm -hmm. and the county sheriff and principally Des Plaines. Uh, a lot of interesting things happened during the course of that. Uh, not to beat the clown thing uh, up, but uh, on one of the occasions, he would either be Mr. Nice Guy or he would be angry with him. Mm-hmm. If he was angry with him, there'd be 120-mile-an-hour chases down the expressway or So he whatever. knew he was
1: being tailed? Oh, it was yeah.
2: absolutely open surveillance. Yeah. I mean, he knew absolutely what was going on. Other days, he'd buy him breakfast or... Buy him dinner and a drink and, you know, and so forth. That Dr. Jekyll and answer. Mr. Hyde. Oh, yeah. So one that was occurring on one occasion, and he was talking about his clowning. He said, well, being a clown is great at parades. You can walk up to the crowd on the curb and squeeze women's breasts, and they just laugh. Funny clown. He said, you know what? He said, a clown can get away with murder.
0: A clown and a president, apparently. <laughs> so That's what he said.
2: Cloud yeah. to get away with murder.
0: But he eventually just confessed to everything, Well,
2: right? before that, what, what happened during the surveillance uh, and the investigation by Des Plaines and, and the sheriff's department? There was a young girl named Kim Byers who worked at the same pharmacy, and on the night that Robbie Peace disappeared, he had been wearing this blue down jacket. He had lent it to her because she was working in a cold area by the front door. He was stocking shelves in a warm spot in the back. While she had that jacket on, she filled out a photo receipt for some enlargement she was getting, ripped off the receipt, put the envelope in the photo drawer, but put the receipt in the pocket of the jacket, forgetting it wasn't her jacket, it was Robbie's. When he left to go talk to the contractor fella, she gave him the jacket back. Mm -hmm. Did not remember to take out that receipt for the photo. Mm. So during the execution of the first search warrant at Gacy's house, where they saw the lime in the crawl space and the muck and how it was a bad drainage area, so the lime made sense, actually, but they didn't notice anything else uh, of interest there, but they recovered uh, John Zick's high school ring, they recovered Zick's a picture of Zick's television set that was there. Trophies. Uh, They recovered a massive array of uh, bond slips and uh, driver's licenses and jewelry that didn't appear to be right for a guy of Gacy's age And, and lots of torture stuff and so forth. But the most important recovery they made was in the kitchen wastebasket. There was this red photo slip with a serial number on it. And they then went back to the pharmacy and asked them about it, and they looked it up. Well, yeah. Kim Byers. Yeah. She had been interviewed, but she had forgotten about that. And when her memory was reminded, she said, oh, yeah, I, I wrote the thing out, and you're right. I must have stuck it in Robbie's jacket. So now you had a connection tying, contrary to Gacy's written and oral statements up to that point, tying Robert Peace to his house. Okay. And that was the first crucial lead and was part of what formed the second search warrant, including the basis for the second search warrant, Zix ring and some other things uh, as well. And so that second search warrant was served after his arrest. He was actually arrested in the afternoon of the 21st, late afternoon, for passing uh, marijuana and pills and so forth to a 14-year-old gas station attendant in Park Ridge who immediately ran over to the surveillance car and says, look at this stuff he just gave me. (laughs) (laughs) They're looking for the sergeant to get approval. Do you want us to make a stop? Do you want us to arrest him on this or what? They couldn't find the sergeant. Finally, uh, they they did or they decided to just do it, and they, they arrested him. And the young man that was driving him around that day, who was later a trial witness for us, one of the fellows that worked for him, uh, said he had told him that he had killed over 30 people for the outfit.
0: Oh, for the mafia.
2: Yeah. Okay. And he used that same phrase when he tried to borrow a gun from a contractor friend of his, wow. who also testified at trial.
0: Do you think he was trying to set up a defense already?
2: Well, he was. What he was doing at that point was, at least, he told Ron Rohde, the contractor, "You, well, I'd really like to get a gun because I'm gonna. I think these guys are gonna take me down." And if they take me down, I'm taking a few of them with me. Of course, he didn't have that kind Mm -hmm. of guts. He was a guy that in a major fight with someone would fall down and play dead all the time, have one of his phony heart attacks. Uh, But he was strong. But anyway, uh, technically the arrest was for the delivery of these narcotics to this underage kid. But once he was arrested, he again had another phony heart attack. They took him to Northwest Community Hospital, which gave him a lot of time to prepare the second search warrant right. based on the stuff they'd found and the statement from the kid and you know, other things. Went to the house, began digging in two separate areas. And when I say digging, just a little troweling was all that was necessary in the beginning. Uh, with some lights under there. And bingo, in two opposite corners of the crawl space, they discovered human remains. And so they went back to the station, uh, charged him with multiple homicides uh, and uh, some other counts. And uh, he began to talk and gave a series of oral statements, which he refused to sign, which he refused to have recorded or videotaped. Uh, refused to put down in writing and sign but to numerous police witnesses and, and most of them in the presence of his attorneys and they were tremendously important evidence in terms of his
0: psychiatric defense so let's go there you have these bodies you have his confession would you describe this as an open and shut prosecution
2: well You'd hope so, but we knew instantly it was going to be an insanity defense. And so when we set up a sort of voluntary task force between all the law enforcement groups involved, which now included Chicago police as well, I had a number, uh, thanks to the superintendent I had a, and chief of detectives, I had a significant number of homicide detectives from Chicago assigned to... In, assist the sheriff's investigators in going out and doing immediate interviews of relatives and neighbors and so on. If you wait for the defense to get those people, uh, oh, gee, he was always weird. He was fell off the swing in grade school, and he was <laughs> having nightmares ever since.
1: John so, and I totally don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> but if you get there first...
2: <laughs> It's, hey, he was a great guy. He plowed our snow every winter. He, uh, yeah. If my lawnmower was broken, he'd come cut the grass. He was uh, our Democratic precinct captain, you know, <laughs> and so forth. And uh, just, we don't get it. Just a great guy. No sign of uh, the kind of serious mental illness that would take them out of an insanity defense. And we had a unique situation where we had a doctor named Leonard Heston, who was the chief of the psychiatry department at the University of Minnesota Medical School and a nationally recognized expert, uh, particularly on uh, paranoid and other schizophrenias, who uh, had examined him back in uh, the 60s when he had been charged with sodomizing a 16-year-old youth in Iowa. In Iowa, right. And uh, in that case, he was ultimately pled guilty And he was sentenced to 10 years. The the judge, before sentencing, had reviewed uh, Heston's reports and then sent him a letter and said, I want some more detail on this, uh, a specific idea about what the right sentence should be. And basically, what Heston wrote back was this guy is a serial predator, he's a sexual predator. He's going to remain one. There are no known therapies, uh, either chemical or uh, otherwise, that are going to improve his situation. He is going to remain dangerous, and you should sentence him to the most protective sentence of, to protect society that you can. In he words, was released
0: after 18 months. In other words, I mean. lock
2: the door. Well, the max, uh, he didn't give him the max, but he gave him a pretty good sentence of 10 years. But after a year and a half, uh, Iowa paroled him, and Illinois, uh, to their discredit, agreed to transfer his parole to uh, Illinois.
1: That's when he got married, right? And he got married and moved here?
2: Well, he was, no, he was married in Iowa okay. and had two natural children by that marriage in Iowa. Uh, his wife divorced him uh, after the charges. Oh, so uh, weird. He was running three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants for uh, her father, who owned them. And had pictures of him in a Kentucky colonel suit in each of oh the restaurants. It's just
0: all kinds of creepy outfits. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so what what would you say, was there ever a moment in the trial where you were concerned?
2: No. I mean, I was always concerned because when we selected the jury, and there were a lot of interesting legal points in this case, too, in terms of selecting a jury out of county, but trying the case here, right. that was a first in Illinois. Uh, credit Judge Lou Garippo for that. And seven of the total jury said on voir examination that someone who killed 33 people and put 29 of them on his own property and slept over them in their crawl space has to be crazy. Oh, I see. I mean, that's okay. not— That was his defense. That's,
1: not, that's not, 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 not a bizarre a, Yeah, I uh, yeah. mean, I, I buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: So I mean, our job was to show them that, as a legal matter, legal responsibility in terms of the insanity defense, is something different than saying that guy's got to be crazy. Uh, there were a number of jurors that either themselves or had family members who had been successfully treated by therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists. You couldn't take the I, we, I believed you could not take the approach that's often taken in the south and in particularly in Texas, we don't care if the defense has a psychiatrist. We don't need one. Mm-hmm. There was a famous, at least in the guys in the public defender's office, case in Cook County years ago where an assistant public defender argued to a jury it was a case where, I'm sorry, not an assistant public defender, an assistant state's attorney uh, had a case where the defense had three psychiatrists and psychologists, the state had no one. And so the evidence goes in, and said. now in closing argument. He said, you know what, folks, psychiatrists are like bananas. You can buy them by the bunch. <laughs> okay. And it was affirmed on appeal, actually. I'm wow. not sure it would be today, but yeah. at that time it was. But in any case, we felt we had to take the insanity defense seriously. We assembled a team of really good medical model psychiatrists and psychologists, who did a lot of -of state-of-the-art testing and diagnostic procedures, as opposed to the defense psychiatrists and psychologists who were basically all Freudians, Mm. who were, you know, there was a guy from the Menninger Clinic, and Carl Menninger, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't believe anyone should be punished for crime, that it's all a mental disease, and has written about that extensively and so
1: forth. I know one of the challenges in this case was that the search warrant had some controversy uh, uh, surrounding it. And what I don't know is if that was the first one or the second one. And I assume there was a motion to suppress that followed that. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? It was the
2: first warrant. uh, The first warrant. uh,
1: So that's the the one that got you in the house?
2: Well, when you say you, I wasn't involved in the case at that time. It was the Des Plaines police that sought a warrant. Uh, with the help of a sheriff's investigator and an assistant state's attorney that was in the, in the district, uh, who, who was our third chair, who did wind up as part of the trial team, but the first search warrant didn't properly state an offense. It, it it used a term that what isn't in the Illinois statutes. It left out a lot of information that was known that could have provided a pretty pretty good, in my opinion, an ironclad warrant, but wasn't in there. And it was very sketchy. In fact, there was a rope recovered in the kitchen wastebasket, the same one that had the photo receipt piece of clothesline uh, that we think was used for the rope trick on Robert peast and it had some of his hairs on it. That's why we think that. Uh, well, that was not admitted at trial uh, because it was outside the scope of the first warrant, and it could have easily been included mm-hmm. in a way But the serious problem was the misstatement of the offense and whether there was actually sufficient evidence for probable cause the way it was written. I mean, there was probable cause known, but it wasn't in there. That was the defense belief.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So there was a hearing on that in trial. Now, my feeling always was that the second warrant was written in such a way that it didn't need the first warrant. Mm -hmm. Now, it absolutely included things that were were covered based on the first warrant, but I believe established more than adequate probable cause even if you omitted those items. Right. Okay? So my theory to the judge, and I did not argue uh, that uh, Terry Sullivan argued the motion. He was the one that helped prepare the warrant. So... The judge did not accept the concept of the, uh, the second warrant stand and subsequent. There were probably five warrants, search warrants. Uh, the later warrants standing alone, he didn't need to because he accepted. He said, "No, there's sufficient probable cause in the first. See, time. I would think
0: the fact that he was a clown would be enough.
1: Like, <laughs> you know, I do think, and uh, you know, we're all lawyers here, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the legal system. I feel like if somebody finds 29 basements in your body, they're going to figure out a way to make that warrant valid. 29 uh, bodies in your basement? Uh, yeah, sorry, basements yeah, in your body. That would have been yeah. interesting. Yeah. I feel like uh, they're going to they're gonna figure that out regardless.
2: Well, I would n- never second-guess Judge Garippo. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Politics to this day. I,
2: I will tell you that I, I have a personal feeling that he— did not want to be remembered as the guy <laughs> that quashed the search warrant in the right. John Casey case.
1: I, w- <laughs> I would not want to be that guy either, uh, sorry.
2: Notwithstanding not my oft-repeated secondary argument that the second, third, and fourth, and fifth warrants yeah. could stand alone quite easily, and that's yeah. all that mattered. But no, that was not going
0: anywhere. So zooming out a little bit, it's been decades since this happened. As I said at the top of the hour, You've had a number of really famous cases in Chicago, but this was really a career-defining case for you. Looking back on it, what do you take away from it?
2: Well, it was a career-defining case in many ways. It was a wonderful opportunity. Uh, Bernie Carey was state's attorney at the time. I was his chief deputy. He personally asked me to try the case. I wanted to try the case. But you asked before about, uh, is it a slam dunk? Well, it was often said in the state's attorney's office, if you want to really succeed, you've got to win all the cases you're supposed to win, and every once in a while, win one or two that you're not supposed to win. Mm-hmm. So the absolutely worst thing is to lose a case you're supposed to win. Right. Okay? Well, and to win this case, you have to get the death penalty as well at the time. So I never took it lightly. I always felt I got a lot of uh, uh, kidding from guys. Oh, that was really a tough one. You had to try there with all the bodies on the property. (laughs) Uh, As I said before, though, there were lots of novel legal issues involved. We had, at the time of trial, 11 unidentified bodies. Uh, We had you know, proof of custody, chain of custody and identity on river bodies and so forth. Uh, There were a lot of issues. And then you're dealing with a a jury from a county you're not familiar with, as you are with day-to-day Cook County juries. And it's, uh, as you say, a guy that sleeps over 27 bodies every night. And uh, so I never regarded it as a slam dunk and it was a lot of work. You have to learn a lot of psychiatry, you have to learn a lot of forensics. A lot of what I already knew, but it was a tremendous education It allowed me to go all over the country lecturing to police officers, state's attorneys, defense lawyers, whoever wanted to hear, psychiatrists, even the National Association of Psychiatrists, uh, medical examiner, investigators, you name it. And so, it was a a significant thing for my career and my life, but it was most significant because we were able to do the right thing for, at the time, 24 families, and you asked about what are the hard points of dealing with the case, well dealing with 24 grieving families is uh, a starter.
0: And that little piece of wisdom and justice is probably a good place for us to take a break.
3: Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. Interested in getting more calls from potential clients? Consider joining the CBA's Lawyer Referral Service. The LRS has provided a valuable service to attorneys in the community for over 80 years by matching clients with attorneys in particular areas of law. The LRS receives 25,000 calls annually and makes over 10,000 referrals to attorneys each year. In the last two years alone, LRS attorneys have been referred several cases that have settled for an excess of $1 million. To learn more, visit www.lrs.chicagobar.org.
0: And we're back. So Bill, we want to end this episode the way we end. Every episode with a game we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. The rules are pretty simple. Trish and I have researched some strange but real laws that are still in the books somewhere in the United States. We're going to read one of those to you, and then we're going to read another to you that we've just completely made up, and we're going to quiz you and each other to see if we can distinguish strange fact from (laughs) legal fiction. You ready to play? Sure. Trish, why don't you go first?
1: So I have two laws that I have researched. I spent the morning doing this in this Arctic day here in Chicago. And this is the first. So I'll read the first one and then the second one. And then you can tell me which one you think is real and which one you think is not real. So the first one is in Ottumwa, Iowa, it is illegal for a man to wink at a woman they do not know. And the second one is that in Kentucky, it is required by the state constitution that every legislator, public officer, or lawyer has to take an oath swearing that they have not fought in a duel with a deadly weapon.
2: Hmm. This is kind of like a uh, radio show. Mm-hmm.
1: Wait, wait, don't tell yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's actually what we're aiming for here. <laughs>
2: I wish we had that comedy yeah. down Unfortunately, on. I've seen some really bizarre laws, so it's...
1: And I'll tell you, I think John's going to know this one. I feel confident that this is, you'll know. I'm going to
2: say that the second one is the real one. Why is that? Uh, The first one sounds more
0: bizarre, I guess.
1: Okay. John?
0: I'm going to go with Bill. I know the South still has a lot of anti-dueling laws on the books, which says something about their need for them.
1: <laughs> well, you're both right. Um, that is the correct law. Still to this day, when you get sworn into the bar in Kentucky, you have to swear an oath that you have not participated in a duel with a deadly weapon. Um, the law in Iowa is uh, not a law, but was has for many, many years been an urban legend in that town that has picked up a lot of steam, So, but it has never been illegal. So wink away, gentlemen.
0: I actually have a friend from Atomwa, Iowa. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> she was my uh, roommate in law school.
1: <laughs> I apologize because I'm pretty sure I butchered the pronunciation. Station.
0: Actually, no. You pronounced it right. I
1: I, I looked it up. There are twenty five thousand people that live there. So it's
0: a big town for Iowa. I, I
1: felt that it was it was much bigger than I expected it to be.
0: Yeah. All right. Option number one, Bill. Round two. In Anchorage, Alaska, it is illegal for a person to get drunk at a bar and remain on the premises. Option number one. Option number two. In Reno, Nevada, it is illegal for a licensed clown to initiate any contact with a person under 14 years of age. That person can touch the clown, but the clown cannot initiate contact with that person. Bill, what do you think? Hmm.
2: clown one, that's interesting.
1: (laughs) Apropos, huh?
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: In Reno. Well, the thing about the uh, the Alaska one is if you were drunk in a bar and you had to leave, you might find you frozen on the curb the next morning. That's a good point. So I'm going to have to go with the the clown one.
0: You think the clown one's real? Yeah. Trish, what do you think?
1: I know the answer to this, John.
0: Do you really? I
1: do. Um, do you want me to say? Go. I think the clown one is real and the Alaska one is fake in Alaska, but that that is in fact a law in Alabama.
0: Well, it may be a law in Alabama, but it is also a law in Anchorage, Alaska. No
1: kidding. Well, it, it is. is a law in Alabama because wow. I found it in my research is for right? today's program. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> okay.
0: So the statute says an intoxicated person may not knowingly enter or remain at an establishment while intoxicated. Bill, you're an expert on mens rea. I don't know exactly what that means if you're really (laughs) intoxicated, but that's a law. The other one, I don't know, maybe it's a law. I just made it up, but it could very well be. I
1: just recognized the Alaska one, but I knew it was a law in Alabama. I thought you were trying to fool me. Always.
0: (laughs) And that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Bill Kunkel, for joining us. Uh, for this disturbing but informative and truly fascinating discussion. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host today, Trish Rich, our executive producer Jen Byrne, and our sound crew Ricardo Islas, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network, of course. They're a great team. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please rate and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out until next time for everyone here at the CBA. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon at the bar.